turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action in college admissions. The effort to teach children uh, politics has truly undermined America's future competitiveness. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's ex-school resource officer is found not guilty on all counts. I, I wouldn't have done anything different because my actions were based on what my initial stimuli was. Bed Bath & Beyond will live on as Overstock.com acquires the bankrupt retailer. What we're doing is combining a business model that works with an iconic brand. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Friday, June 30th. I'm Mike Scott. In an historical move, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action policies in college admissions. Reporter Evan Lambert breaks down the facts of the two cases that were brought before the Supreme Court. This monumental case, actually a set of two cases, but one decision, 6-3, with the conservatives carrying that decision there, the liberal justices dissenting. This was written by the chief justice, as I understand it, striking down the use of race-based affirmative action in college admissions. So the last time that the Supreme Court ruled on affirmative action in admissions was about 20 years ago. This reverses that decision, which said that race could be used uh, along with other factors. This decision just out this morning specifically outlaws the use of race in college admissions. So these were two cases, uh, the same group Uh, brought these lawsuits here. Students for Fair Admissions is the name of that group. And they sued both UNC, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Harvard College. Uh, And there were two separate cases because one is public, one is private. So this ruling really now speaks to all colleges. Lambert goes on to read part of that decision. Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, And then later in the opinion, the justices write, 20 years have passed since Grutter. That was the last time that they ruled on this with no end to race-based college admissions in sight. But the court has permitted race-based college admissions only within the confines of narrow restrictions. Such admissions programs must comply with strict scrutiny, may never use race as a stereotype or negative, and must at some point end. Respondents' admissions systems fail each of these criteria and must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So that is the majority opinion, 6-3, in this case, now striking down the use of affirmative action in college admissions. Students for Fair Admissions, the group who brought the lawsuits, is a group headed by Edward Bloom, a conservative legal strategist who has spent years fighting affirmative action on college campuses. One case said that Harvard's admissions policy 
unlawfully discriminates against Asian American applicants. The other asserted that the University of North Carolina unlawfully discriminates against white and Asian American applicants. However, this is not the first time that race-based admissions policies have been struck down. Nine states have already banned the practice at public colleges and universities, including Arizona, California, Florida, Idaho, Michigan, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Washington. Damon Hewitt, the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which defended affirmative action before the Supreme Court says, while he considers this decision to be a setback, he's not going to give up. This case is going to make it more difficult for students to gain access. But we're not going to do a stop fight. Hewitt says the high court's decision to strike down use of affirmative action in college admissions, in his opinion, is wrong. While pretending to faithfully apply existing legal standards, the court essentially engaged in mental gymnastics and twisted the law into a pretzel, into a pretzel that defies all region, reason, all history, all logic. After the verdict, President Biden weighed in. Not going to let this break us. The Congressional Black Caucus said the Supreme Court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. Is this a rogue court? This is not a normal court. Republican Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin joined the Salem Radio Network and also weighed in on the Supreme Court decision. Recognize that college admissions need to be about uh, excellence. And as student, as colleges build classes, they have to take all kinds of things into consideration. But, you know, one of the things that I have felt so strongly about is we've seen we've seen the pursuit of equity, in fact, uh, undermine excellence. And we've seen it in our high schools. We've seen it in, in colleges. And this is just a moment for us to all step back and, and recognize that we have to raise the bar. And we can raise, by the way, we can raise the ceiling and the floor at the same time. It's what we're doing in our public schools in Virginia. We, in fact, are going to put back high standards for proficiency in our public public schools in Virginia. But we're also working to support those areas of, of Virginia that have perennially underperformed and uh, making sure that we're bringing more resources there. This is about opportunity. And we should provide opportunity paths for all Virginians and all Americans but to mandate that we're going to lower expectations is really not keeping with America. Looking at his own state, Yunkin says that when it comes to education, it's important to both strive for excellence and lift up marginalized students. We've been fighting this battle uh, on excellence in admissions, um, yes, all the way through to our, our governor schools. And you know, Hugh, that we've been that there's been a battle over the Thomas Jefferson School for Science and Technology and the admissions policies there, which mimic this exact same discussion. And so we passed a, we passed a law last year that ba- that basically said it's going to be a merit based admissions policy that is not it is not going to uh, racially discriminate. And on top of that, then we we added into our middle school curriculum support for students who would aspire to go to our governor's schools. And again, I think so often the the, the left liberal progressives try to turn this into an or moment, and we we need to turn it into an and. We should have merit-based admissions. 
and students who aspire for these schools should have excellent uh, uh, public education and support systems to get them prepared. Youngkin says that under previous administrations in Virginia, educational standards were weakened. What we have seen is that Virginia, during the previous eight eight years of, of Democratic leadership, watered down the standards that was that were defining proficiency, and as a result, the SOL scores, standard learning scores, went up, and yet the national report card scores went down. And that's, that's the honesty gap that we are closing in Virginia by reestablishing high standards of proficiency, excellence, and we're going to stretch our students. The biggest issue the Virginia governor sees in affirmative action admissions is that it ultimately hurts American students by lowering expectations. This past year in Fairfax County, um, there was a, you know, a clear effort to not notify students when they had achieved uh, uh, accolades on the national merit tests. And we went, we went at it, our attorney general's in the middle of an investigation. Uh, this is just a, a, systemic, a systemic effort to try to undermine excellence. And so alternative testing approaches, clear transparency on what the tests that we are applying mean, and trying to set standards that, in fact, stretch our students. You know, we've, we've got control of our state board of education uh, with, with uh, appointees that I've been able to make, and we are riding the ship here. Uh, but this is, this is an overall recognition that there has been a, a, a effort. Not a, this has not been a mistake. This has been purposeful to water down expectations around the nation on testing requirements so that the underperformance of schools and the effort to teach children uh, politics as opposed to the critical areas of math and science and reading has truly undermined America's future competitiveness. The court is expected to announce major decisions later today on President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program and a case that impacts gay rights. It's the court's final day before justices go on their summer break. More smoky air is on the way for much of the U.S., Daybreak Insider's Rita Foley has more on the haze that is draping over America. It's those wildfires in Canada. They'll continue to send worsening smoky air across parts of the U.S. over the coming days, say experts. Most of the fires now considered out of control. Recent heavy rains miss the places where the fires are most active. One expert's suggestion, get into the habit of checking air quality every day this summer. One way to do that? Go to the EPA's website, airnow.gov, and put in your zip code. This morning, Washington, D.C. and Chicago were among the places with unhealthy air. Meanwhile, NASA's reporting that smoke from wildfires in Quebec has now reached Europe. I'm Rita Foley. Scott Peterson, the ex-school resource officer who was accused of Failing to confront a shooter who killed 17 at Florida's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018 was acquitted of all charges on Thursday. In the circuit court of the 17th Judicial Circuit in and for Broward County, Florida, case number 197166CF10A, State of Florida Plaintiff versus Scott Peterson Defendant, verdict, count one. We, the jury, find as follows as to the defendant in this case. The defendant is not guilty. Peterson, who is 60, 
was armed with a handgun when he arrived at the scene of the shooting. Prosecutors argued he took cover instead of confronting the gunman, putting his own life ahead of children inside the school. After the events at Stoneman Douglas, Peterson was charged with seven counts of felony child neglect, three counts of misdemeanor culpable negligence, and perjury for allegedly lying to investigators under oath about his actions and understanding of that day. He was acquitted on all counts after more than 19 hours of jury deliberations over four days. Tony Montalto, whose 14-year-old daughter Gina was one of the first victims killed in the shooting, said he didn't understand how a jury could acquit Peterson. As you can hear the uh, fine good sportsmanship of Deputy Peterson and the lawyer's family as they cheer this victory. Um, For our families, we still feel he should be haunted every day by his failure to act. I know that he caused, he contributed, I should say, to the deaths of my daughter Gina, her schoolmates, and their teachers. After appearing in court, Peterson was asked what he would say to families who lost loved ones in the shooting, and the ex-resource officer says he hopes that they heard the truth. If they've listened to the trial, I think they would clearly know what my actions were during on that scene, and that's just what I believe. I just hope they sat and listened to what the facts were, and I think they would have an idea of what actually occurred. When asked if he'd do anything different, Peterson had this to say. I, I wouldn't have done anything different because my actions were based, were based on what my initial stimuli was, was hearing the two shots outside, and I moved the cover not knowing where those shots were. Peterson's lawyer, Mike Iglarsh, defends the decision not to put Peterson on the stand. Why should my client ever have to prove anything? That's number one. Number two, they never even called the lead investigator in this case. They kept him away. They hid him so I couldn't destroy him in front of the jury for the shoddy political investigation that he did. And third, the prosecutor tried to destroy some of our defense witnesses, some of the officers who were on that scene, who did everything they could honorably and zealously. I would never subject my client to that. Jim Thompson, a writer for RedState.com, weighed in as well, writing, quote, Mr. Peterson acted cowardly and should have been fired and scorned for his failure to do anything. But that doesn't mean that he was pursuant to a criminal statute criminally liable for child neglect. Where does that leave Peterson? A free man, a coward in my estimation, but I don't think he was criminally liable, end quote. Jim Thompson went on to write, quote, Peterson said after the verdict that he got his life back. There are 17 people in Parkland who will never get that chance, end quote. Finally, Hunter Biden will be deposed in a defamation case brought by a laptop repair shop owner. We get more on this from our Daybreak Insider, 
Edwin Mora. Hunter arrived in Delaware Thursday to be deposed as part of the civil lawsuit filed by John Paul Mac Isaac, who in 2019 came into possession of the first son's infamous, quote, laptop from hell. The president's son is expected to provide all of his unredacted bank records from April 2019, according to a plaintiff's notice obtained by the New York Post. Mac Isaac had sued Hunter Biden for defamation last year, alleging he left the store owner hanging while falsely insisting that the laptop was not his, that it had been stolen or that his information had been hacked. Edwin Mora, Washington. Well, perhaps it was too soon to read Bed Bath & Beyond its last rights. The bankrupt retailer will now live on thanks to Overstock.com, who acquired the chain's intellectual property Assets. Of Overstock.com jumping 19, almost 20% today. The company acquiring digital and intellectual property assets from bankrupt retailer Bed Bath & Beyond for about $21.5 million. The all-cash deal includes the retailer's website, domain names, trademarks, trade names, patents, customer database, loyalty program data, and other brand assets. Overstock already changing its website name to Bed Bath & Beyond in Canada today and will make that change here in the U.S. in the coming weeks. Overstock.com CEO Jonathan Johnson says buying the bankrupt retailer was a no-brainer. It really describes who we've become. You know, we started out 20-plus years ago as a liquidator. We became a general merchandiser. Now we're a home furnishings and, and furniture company, and there was a lot of headwind with the name Overstock. Headwind with customers who, who were confused who we were and what we were selling, Headwind with suppliers that didn't want to necessarily sell if it was associated with liquidation. Bed Bath & Beyond, really great, iconic brand, loyal customers, and it describes who we are. So I think this, we're taking a headwind and replacing it with, we hope, a tailwind for real growth. While there may be some risk involved, Johnson is confident that he can make the acquisition work. You know, there's some risk. We did do a lot of research uh, before we did this deal. The Bed Bath & Beyond brand is still strong. So, you know, mismanagement may have hurt the business prospects, but the brand is still strong. Also, the customers at Bed Bath & Beyond really have an overlap with our customers. And we'll do this transition slowly where the Overstock customer will come to the new website come August and we'll recognize it, but so will the Bed Bath & Beyond customer. And then over time, we'll sunset out the Overstock feel. Johnson explains how the new Bed Bath & Beyond will be different from the old one. We like our asset-like business model. We don't have physical stores. We're an Internet company. And we think what we're doing is combining a business model that works with an iconic brand. And we think those two things together really set us up for growth and will differentiate us from the Bed Bath that, you know, ran into troubles and ran out of business. We think we can do this better because of this asset-like business model. Bed Bath & Beyond was one of the original big box retailers known for its seemingly endless offerings of sheets, towels, and kitchen gadgets. It filed for bankruptcy protection in April. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says the central bank may have to tighten its oversight of the American financial system. Daybreak Insider's Donna Water has the very latest on news from inside the Federal Reserve. 
Powell says that tougher restrictions put in place after the 2007-2008 financial crisis have made large multinational banks much more resilient to widespread loan defaults. But he says the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank exposed different vulnerabilities that the Fed will likely address through new proposals. Powell didn't elaborate, but other Fed officials have said that banks should be required to hold more capital in reserve to guard against loan losses. Donna Water, Washington. The last living sibling of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Christine King Ferris, has died. She was 95. Daybreak Insider's Ed Donahue remembers the legacy of Christine King. Ferris helped Coretta Scott King build the King Center in Atlanta and helped to teach her brother's philosophy of nonviolent resistance. One scholar said her work may have been behind the scenes, but Ferris was no less important. She remembered Martin Luther King Jr. in Chicago in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected the nation's first black president. I guess it was a farewell speech when he said, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Tonight, we are on our way. Martin Luther King III wrote, Aunt Christine used the tragedies of the assassinations of her mother and brother to fight for change. I'm Ed Donahue. And finally, aspartame is found almost everywhere. Diet sodas, chewing gum, cereal, cough drops, and other sugar-free products. It's also sold as tabletop sweeteners like Equal or NutraSweet. However, in a new study, the International Agency for Research on Cancer declares that the popular sweetener may be a possible carcinogen. Frida Fisher is a doctor specializing in nephrology, and she says that at this time, it's unsure just how dangerous aspartame supposedly is. Here's how concerned we should be. We don't know yet. We know that everything in life and in medicine is about risks and benefits. So it's not just about it being possibly declared as a possible carcinogen or a possible cancer-causing agent. We need to know how possible it is. So this committee you mentioned for the World Health Organization has also called some other controversial things possibly carcinogenic. And I'll tell you what, they say that it's Things are probably carcinogenic, like working overnight and eating red meat. Okay, that's one of their categories. They have labeled in the category of possibly carcinogenic using cell phones. Okay, and so the aspartame is about to possibly be in the same category. Aspartame was considered unhealthy in the past, but Dr. Fisher points out it was believed to be unhealthy only in large doses. What's really important is for us to wait and see the review to see if we're talking about cancer in mice, to see the percentage of people. In 1981, they did declare that aspartame was had a possibility of a risk of cancer, but it was a huge amount. So that's going to be important. It was 40 milligrams per kilogram, which would be the equivalent of someone who weighs 132 pounds drinking 12 to 36 cans of soda with aspartame a day. And so I don't want everyone to get alarmed, but let's pay attention and really find out how risky the aspartame is. At the end of the day, Dr. Fisher says that individuals should decide what's best for them 
especially with so many unknowns. Be very, very careful as far as absolutes and really weigh out the benefits and risks for us as individuals. And so I'm looking forward to the reports that should come out on July 14th so that all scientists and physicians can take a really careful look at the data and we can counsel our patients on if they should ban aspartame or just be very careful about the use of it. Currently, Dr. Fisher is herself okay with consuming aspartame in small quantities. Right now, I am comfortable drinking it, but not in large amounts. The FDA says it also continues to monitor the scientific literature for any new information on aspartame. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and TownHall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. 